0: Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. But what we're here for right now is really the word of the Lord, and we're gonna be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We've been in this letter for a while. you know. So Paul writes this letter to a church that was struggling. They were struggling internally. They were fighting with each other. Hard to believe, but you know, it's them. <laughs> Uh they were struggling because of doctrinal differences, personality differences that came from cultural there were cultural differences. Just a couple of weeks ago I made a little bit of a joke and I just said, you know, why are some of you calling the hogs when you should be saying giga maggies? And just like that, there was tension in the room, you know, and it kind of proved the point. The people from Arkansas were just set against me just like that, right? Um It was no different for the people in Corinth, and so as as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a couple things I I want you to remember. Uh, Just like people from before, the things that we struggle with now, they're, they're no different. They're absolutely no different. And what we're gonna find as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is, they had a problem with idolatry, and we do too. So with that in mind, let's take a look. You know, the Corinthians, they came out of a life where they went to temples, uh, the early converts in Corinth, they were, they were pagan in the real sense of the word pagan, and they were coming to Jesus. They were sacrificing meat to idols. Uh, they would join in some pretty sketchy stuff sexually. They come to Jesus. They join the church, but some of them would kind of slide back into the practices that they had before. That sounds a lot like us, right? We kind of hear in our Christian walk, and then we step over into a non-Christian walk, and then we step back into, it was like them. Paul says, by the way, guys, I'm not really okay with any of this. It shouldn't be a part of the church, and so let's talk about it. So let's get into the text and why it matters, and so let's start with verse one. Here's what he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, so he's talking about people in the past, were all under the cloud. Now, really what he's talking about here is the Israelites during the Exodus. He's making a reference here that when they were being delivered, they were led by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. So they were all under something that was a manifestation of God for their personal direction. Our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses. Now, here's all this means, is that when you talk about baptism, it's saying you are aligning yourself with a leader and you're aligning yourself with a community. Doesn't mean that they believe that like Moses was their savior, but Moses was portioned in a particular uh, uh, point of responsibility to lead them out. And just like as we are baptized, we're baptized into Christ. We identify with him into a community which is his church. We're identifying with something else. So he says, all were baptized into, into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate, they all ate the same spiritual food all drank the same spiritual drink. In other words, the things that were really literally provided by the Spirit of God for their good and their blessing. Even as they're on a journey, even as they're out in the middle of the wilderness, God has provided for them. So he's talking about the Exodus, the deliverance through the Red Sea, the manna that God provided. It literally means, what is it? But God was providing it. And then he gives a list of some not so great things. If you look at verse 6, he says, now these things took place as examples for us. Have you, heard, have you ever heard the saying, you might wanna learn from somebody else's mistakes so that you don't repeat them? That's what this verse is saying. We have all this on record so that you can learn from it and not do it. Here's another translation when he says, these things took place as examples for us. Why? So that we will not desire evil things as they did. In the middle of God's provision and in the middle of God's deliverance, the Israelites were desiring evil things. Here's another translation of it. They were, they were, is to keep us from lusting after evil. So what were they doing? What were the Israelites doing? Well, I'll give you a snapshot. And you see this in verses seven through 10. Well, one, they were, they were committing idolatry. Uh, now in Corinth, just a, there were temples everywhere. There were idols everywhere. So you have the church, surrounded by literally pagan temples and idolatry. Probably not that hard to fall back into it when you're saturated by it. But for Israel, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. This is in Exodus 32. What are the people doing while he's up on the mountain? You might remember this. They're down there crafting a golden calf. Well, what are you doing? God's just delivered you and you're like, I have a great idea. Let's go create idols. Not their best idea. God's miracles to deliver them, were still; it was still like warm cookies. You know what I'm saying? They just experienced it, and they're already resorting to this. Idolatry was a problem. Paul points it out. The second thing that he points out is sexual immorality. Uh, in Corinth, Aphrodite's temple had a thousand temple prostitutes in it. And what they would do as a part of their worship... Is basically ritualistic sex with these temple prostitutes. A lot of these people in Corinth were coming out of that lifestyle, but kind of sliding back into that lifestyle. And Paul says, it's not fit to who you are as you're found in Jesus Christ. This won't work. That was the second thing. There was a third thing they were testing God. They were testing God. Paul borrows from Numbers 21. And they're what you see, the Israelites, they're on their journey out of Egypt. It proves difficult, but you would probably say the same thing on, well, your spiritual journeys as well. There are times where it just proves difficult. However, God provides manna for them to eat. He provides water for them to drink. But they wanted more variety in their diet. I mean, we're getting manna and water, but uh, what else do you have? And in spite of everything that God had done for them, they wanted him him to serve them more, rather than to serve him. And so they were testing God. That was the third thing. And then here was the fourth, and I know this is unlike anybody in the room, but it's in the text, so we do it. They were grumbling, grumbling, man. So here's what Paul says in verse 14. He's like, all of this, he goes, I want you to flee idolatry. So he gives a list of four, but he tells you the root of all of it is idolatry. Run from it, he says. So here's the question I have for you. What is an idol? What is an idol? Tim Keller says this. Here are really good book called uh, Counterfeit Gods. I'd recommend it to you. He said, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give You only what God can actually give. That's an idol. As you can imagine, that would take a lot of different forms. And for the different people here and online, it would probably look different person to person. But you're trying to find a satisfaction in something that only God can provide, but you look to it to provide it for you. You've identified an idol in your life. So how can you tell that you're worshiping a counterfeit God? Here's what Keller says. A counterfeit God is anything so central and so essential to your life that, should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living anymore. Do you have anything like that? Anything that's just a part of the created world that if you were to lose it, you would actually think, my life is not worth living anymore. That's a pretty good indicator that you've attached yourself to something in a way it wasn't meant to be attached to. And so he goes on to say, an idol is whatever you envision enabling you to live a life of power and joy without God because it becomes your substitute. And so if you look back to the text and you see this in verse six, a couple of things. He says, they lusted after evil things. He uses a really interesting word here, but what it would actually mean for us, like if we put it from the Greek to the English, is this is a desire that is so large, it controls you. A desire that is so large, it controls you. So what this would mean is biblically, anything that takes the place of God that that God is supposed to have in your life, that is an idol for you. Did you notice anything after listing Israel's sins? Sexual immorality, testing God, they were grumbling and complaining. He says in verse 14, all of this is because they were idolaters. Idolatry was the root of the whole thing. Let me give you some examples that you see in scripture, and then maybe a couple that might hit us for where we're at today. Here's one, Adam and Eve, did they have a problem? Well, they had a couple of problems, right? I mean, what kind of a question is that? So they're put in the garden, they have every single provision that they could have asked for, they have all the food that they, that they could have wanted, and it's, the work is actually pretty easy to get it. They have each other, all, everything is going really well, um, and then there was that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had everything else given to them, but they wanted that tree, and they were willing to compromise their relationship with God to get it. That would give you a good idea of what an idol would look like. Now, maybe you don't look and say, well, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's in my backyard, you probably don't have that. But you probably have the same issue they did, which is something that you're willing to compromise your relationship with God with so that you can have it. The question for you is, what is it? For Israel, their desire was to be content to live under an oppressive Pharaoh, to stay under Egyptian captivity so that they could have meat rather than to go through the insecurities and the exposure and the uncertainties of journeying through the wilderness to get to God's place of blessing for them. This is why they grumbled. We'll take the oppression that we already know than the difficulties of where we're at to get to God's place of blessing for us because they've become comfortable with it. One of the examples I've always thought about, I remember some years ago, I remember going in when my girls were really little. I'd go into their their room at night, I would talk with them. Uh, I kinda had this routine with them. I would tell them that I could put dreams in their head. What would they like to dream about tonight? Would you like goofy dreams? And literally through my finger, I could squirt the dream through their ear this is all free of charge right now, all right? Uh, and they would, they would list off all kinds of things and I would shoot the dreams in, into their brain so that they would dream about these things at night, right? And then I'm walking out of the room and as I'd walk out, I would turn the light off. Now, I'd stay there for just a minute and usually what I'd do is I'd just say a quick prayer of the Lord to bless them and to keep them, something like that. Here's the thing though, I'm standing in the dark, Right? And as initially, when I hit the dark, I'm like, I really can't see anything. But the longer I stayed in it, the more attuned to the darkness I got. They weren't any different. I got to a place where initially the light goes out, I'm like, okay. But initially, I could navigate my way through that room if I wanted to, with never turning the light back on. They were no different and this is what an idol will do. It will darken your mind and get you to a place where you're comfortable with it, where you're navigating that life and can't see the light anymore. He said it happened to Adam and Eve, it happened to to Israel, and it will happen to you. So the question for you isn't, do I have an idol in my life? The answer is yes, you do. You possibly have more than one. The question is, what is it or what are they? Let me, let me give you a couple of things to think about here. Idols can be outward facing. They can be outward facing. You're literally looking out there. So some examples would be money or sex or drugs. That's possibilities. But idols can take other forms as well. They're what are called inner idols as well. These are extremely powerful thoughts and feelings that we value. I'll give you some examples. Respect. Respect. Power, status, control. You want to control everything. Greed, or even comfort. I I would sacrifice my, the Israelites have already said, comfort is more important to us than our relationship with God. We'd rather be back with Egypt. Why would we be any different? So what do you see enabling you to live a life of power and joy without God? That's probably your idol. Second, idols change the way that you act. Idols will change the things that you do. Notice this in verse 6. It says, so they set their hearts on evil. And then in verse 8, notice the result. They gave themselves to sexual immorality. They set their heart on it and they gave themselves to it. You will do the same with whatever idol is in your life. You will set your heart on it and you will give your life to it. You remember the 10 Commandments? Do you remember the 10 Commandments? That was the audience participation part. <laughs> and now you're sitting out there going, no. Read your Bible, all right. In the 10 Commandments, what is the first commandment? No other gods. The Hebrew there is actually really interesting. It says, you'll have no other gods before me, but the Hebrew there is like above me, below me, in front of me, or behind me. Basically making a point, nowhere near me, nowhere near me. I should be utterly unique to your life. That's the way it starts. Did you notice the last one? You're all probably looking now. Don't covet, don't covet. In other words, meaning to have a powerful desire for something, does this sound familiar? to have a powerful desire for something, which is lust, because you don't think you'll be happy without it. So what do you do when you have that kind of focus on something? The answer is you pursue it. You pursue it. Henry Nguyen wrote a book some years ago called The Wounded Healer. I recommend it to you. He retails a tale from ancient India. Let me share it with you. He said, four royal brothers decided each to master a special ability, time went by and the brothers met to reveal what they had learned. I've mastered a science, said the first, by which I can take a bone of some creature and create the flesh that goes with it. I, said the second, know how to grow that creature's skin and hair if there is flesh on its bones. The third brother said, I'm able to create its limbs if I have the flesh, the skin, and the hair. Well, I, said the fourth brother, know how to give life to that creature in its, if its form is complete. And so here's what Nguyen said. Thereupon, the brothers went into the jungle to find a bone so that they could demonstrate their specialties. And as fate would have it, the bone they found was a lion's. One added flesh to the bone. The second grew hide and hair. The third completed it with matching limbs. And the fourth gave life to the lion. And then the lion shook its mane, and the ferocious beast arose and jumped on its creators. And he killed them all and vanished into the jungle. And here's why Nguyen gave this example in his book, The Wounded Healer. He said, we have the capacity to create what will devour us. Goals and dreams can consume us. Possessions and property can turn and destroy us unless we first seek God's kingdom and righteousness and allow him to breathe into what we make of life. We create our own destruction. Let me give you another example. This comes from J.D. Greer. I thought it was insightful. He said, it's because we idolize sex and romance that you break your marriage vows and commit adultery. You can't imagine being fulfilled in life without this relationship, and your marriage isn't so easy, so you give up on your marriage. Or it's because you idolize money that you steal. You're not naturally a dishonest person, but fudge this here, Cut the corner there, it gets you a little bit of your cherished extra money because you depend on money for your happiness and security. Without it, I couldn't be either. It's because you idolize the opinions of others that you lie. As an adult, when you lie, it's a lot of times to protect your image, and he's right. Because you still idolize what people think, you'll bend the truth. Image control, not integrity control. So what that means is, is we're like an onion, We're a lot like an onion. You have to peel back the layers of sin, and when you do it, and you get to the core, you're probably gonna find an idol sitting there in your heart. It's like Calvin said, our heart is an idol factory, and it just cranks them out. And he's right. So the question then becomes, what's behind the idol? What's actually behind the idol? And in fact, what you're gonna find when you look at it is that there's more than an idol there. Because you see this in verse 18. When you're giving yourself over to an idol, you're actually giving yourself over to a demon that's behind it. Look at what Paul says. I'm not making it up. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Verse 20, what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. You're playing with fire. See you just think you're looking at an idol in front of you, but what's behind the idol is the bigger question. Here's the way I was looking at it like this. You know, you think the idol is it, but it's really more like a hand that's in a puppet. And the demon is the hand that's manifesting the idol that you've focused yourself on. And so as you give yourself over to it, you're not just giving yourself over to an idol, you're giving yourself over to the demon that is actually behind it. Which means that you are giving yourself over to whatever the thoughts the demon is having, whatever the goals and the desires that the demon has for you. You have just opened up the door for that demon to have the influence of that kind of control over your life. It wasn't just an idol. It was something that had actual power behind it. And some of you are sitting here looking at your life right now and going, yep, and you might even can think about the moment where you opened up that door and said, I wish I'd never done it. I wish I had never done that. You might know the story. You ever heard of the Trojan horse? There was an ancient city on the coast of Turkey named Troy. It was located across the Aegean Sea uh, from the Greek city-state of Sparta. You've heard of the Spartans, right? And when the king of Sparta had heard that his beautiful wife, Helen, had been kidnapped by the prince of Troy, he called on the other Greek city-states to help him get her back. I'd do that for Wendy, no problem. No problem. So his call was, she's thankful, by the way, right now. So his call was answered, and a 1,000 Greek ships set sail for Troy. So here's how the story goes. So the city of Troy, it was protected by a high wall that was built around the city. Some of the parts, they said, were more than 20 feet high. That's pretty tall. There were gates in the wall to let people in and out, but it provided a great defense for the people of, of Troy, It gave the Trojan warriors a safe place to stand while they rained arrows down on people below. They were trying to get over the wall, and they're just like picking them off. They're trying to break into the city. Now, at the time of this story, Greek warriors had been trying to breach the wall around Troy for almost 10 years, hadn't been able to do it, and the Greeks couldn't find the way in, and the Trojans didn't seem to want to let them in, no surprise there things looked actually pretty hopeless until this guy named Odysseus, a famous ancient Greek general, thought of a trick. It was the custom back then to leave a peace offering behind to admit that you had been defeated. After 10 years, it's probably believable that you would think, all right, we got whooped. So he thought of this custom. And so Odysseus suggested that the Greeks built a huge, heavy, beautiful wooden horse and leave it outside of the gates of Troy. Then the entire Greek army would pretend to leave as if they were headed for home. It was a trick. The horse would be hollow. 30 men would be inside of the horse hiding. The very best Greek artists got busy carving the giant wooden horse, adding details because everything in the Greek world had to be as beautiful and as attractive as possible. And when it was done, the Greek warriors pretended to sail away. It looks like they're admitting defeat, right? They leave the horse behind. Here's our peace offering. The people of Troy, they rush outside. They cheer their victory. They drag the heavy horse inside of the city gates. They put it on display. We've won, which is just what the Greek general thought that they would do. They would gloat about their victory. And that night, while the Trojan people were sleeping, the men hiding inside the wooden horse, they climbed outside and they opened the gates, The waiting Greek army entered Troy, and that was the end of Troy, or at least as the story goes. Here's why I bring this up, is because behind the idol is a demon. Behind the idol is a demon. And so as you look at the idol, you're looking at the horse, but you might not be asking what is inside of it. And you open the door to its influence over your life. Have you ever noticed in scripture that Satan is called the prince of the power of the air? This is in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Now, for just one second, I want everybody to take a deep breath. Ready, go. All right, now, here's my, are you done? <laughs> Nobody exhaled, you can exhale. Let me ask you this question, how prevalent is air? How prevalent is that to your experience? It's around you all the time. And Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. It's pervasive, it's all around you. And he works his best to deceive you. It's like looking at the Trojan horse. You think you're winning, but you're losing. So here's the solution. You see this in verse 14. Paul tells you run, run, flee from idolatry. Run from it. And then he gives this promise in the verse right before that, in verse 13. He says, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. Pay attention. But God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Here's the thing. A victory to you today is available. It is available. You've got to believe that. You're not in something that you can't get out of. You might believe it, but don't believe it. That's the lie. There is the possibility of victory for you today. Why? He already told you. God is faithful. He provides the way out. Do you remember Job? Job really went through it, right? That dude went through it. He loses all of his property. He loses his children. Tremendous suffering. But I love this part in Job chapter five, verse 19. He says, from six troubles, he will deliver you. Even from seven, evil will not touch you. In spite of everything that brother was going through, he will win. Believe it. He will win. God provides a way out. What you have to understand today, he has given you options. The only question is, are you gonna take what he's been giving you? You, see, you have to see the problem for what it really is. And until then you stay exactly where you're at. There was a Canadian philosopher named Al Walters. He said this, he said in the biblical view of things, the main problem in life is sin and the only solution is God and his grace. And he is right. Here's what he said though, the alternative to this view is to identify something besides sin as the main problem with the world and something beside God as the main remedy. Those are probably the idols. So here's the invitation to you this morning. I want you to look into your own life. See how the power of the demonic has impacted you. Like actually let's be honest with ourselves today. Maybe you can say this, the love of money has led to corruption. Gratifying your body has led to an addiction. Sexual, drug, I don't know. But gratifying your body has led to an addiction which might have led to brokenness in your family. You you didn't know the pleasure you were seeking was a cover for a demon to impact your life and you went there and now it's a stronghold in your life. Good news, today you can have victory. You can, you can. Well, here's what I want you to know. This morning, what you don't need is more self-assurance. You need the power of God for a win. That's what you need. You don't need self-assurance. And so the altars, they are open. I'm inviting you to come and to pray, to pray with a minister that is going to be at the back or a Stephen minister that is going to be at the back. You might want to pray for somebody else today because you see that what we're talking about this morning is very real and prevalent in their life. We spend time in prayer every single week for this purpose. The remedy for sin is grace and our need is forgiveness and reconciliation. That's it. Paul David Tripp said it like this. You worship your way out of what you worshiped your way into. You pursued all of these other things and you gave your full self to it. Today it's the time to pivot, turn and say, I'm giving my full self over to Christ. That's it. You worship your way out of what you worshiped your way into. Tim Keller said the secret to freedom from enslaving patterns of sin is worship. You need to worship. You need great." Worship. When is the last time you've done that? You need great worship. You need glorious worship. You need to sense God's greatness and to be moved by it. Moved to tears and moved to laughter. Scripture even says, when's the last time we have like grieved over our own sin? That's a part of worship is calling it what it is and saying, Lord, help me for this. Help me. It's enough of losing. Help me. He said, you need to sense God's greatness and be moved by it, moved to tears, moved to laughter, moved by who God is and what he has done for you. Every week, one of the things I say is we pray, pray a prayer of gratitude because God is good. Thank you, thank you. So here's what Keller goes on to say, and this is how I end. The Christian gospel is that I'm so flawed, I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. That's the gospel. And he says, this leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I I can't feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I don't think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. And here's why, because we see it in John chapter 1, verse 12. A promise of God to all of us today, and this is the key. But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. That is the offer for you now. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.